Listeners are advised, this podcast contains coarse language, themes of an adult nature, and inappropriate thoughts about boy bands. And inappropriate thoughts by boy bands, motherfucker. Uh, hello, Amy Long. <laughs> <laughs> hello, Zoe Linkson. How are you? I'm all right. Welcome to the I'm with the Boy Band podcast. This is the podcast that um... is all about boy bands. And... Sorry, I jumped in then. <laughs> really rude of me. I was just going to say that comes to you very regularly and um, <laughs> with up-to-date this information. This is the most regular thing I'm doing. Other than my weekly okay. Zoom calls with my crew, this oh. this thing that happens once every months <laughs> ish most consistent <laughs> I've been through lockdown. Yeah, so if you're listening from another country, we're in lockdown again in England, so that's fun. Lockdown 2.0? 2.0. Just 2.0 for now. The revenge. Yeah, exactly. The sequel. Um, so, yeah, what's been happening? Any boy band news of note that we need to be discussing? I didn't do boy band news on the basis that you told me the band we're doing this week is going to be a double header. So I was like, oh, this is going to be really long. Yeah, it's going to be I really didn't long. Look up any other... McFly had a documentary on ITV. Didn't watch it yet. You did. Review. Go. We're in it. We're in it. Are we? Like, yeah. Not actually us, like our hands. We're, we're actually, you can definitely see me taking pictures <laughs> and Claire's friends who had the banners with Uranus on, you can see them from both both sides. So yeah, so yeah, well, you can see us. It was, it was so good actually. Do tune into the McFly and the I'm with the Boy Band podcast documentary. <laughs> It actually, let's, I thought let's it, know was, if it was really good because a lot of the story that they told basically just reconfirmed what we had said about them. But they went a bit deeper into like why they split and what happened. And Who knew that the actual band would have more of an insight into their story than we did? Not me. There was actually, there's a brilliant part where they show, they're watching old footage of themselves collecting awards and they go up to collect a brit award or something and uh, harry's got a mullet and the biggest sideburns you've ever seen and he goes oh my god look at these sideburns why didn't anyone tell me and it is so <laughs> funny because they just laugh at themselves and yeah it's it's good times so yeah that was that, oh saw the nile horan gig last weekend from the royal oh, how Airport. was that socially distanced from it was 300 miles away wasn't even just socially distanced, mate. It was like just him, no well, it audience. Was. He was in London and you were in Nottingham. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was absolutely excellent. So yeah, You've really a bit uh... of a major One Direction stan, haven't you? With have, the exception yeah. of that one. Yeah. The one we don't talk about. To be honest, I think it's probably just Harry and Niall yeah probably just those two but yeah I do I love them I love them they got a mention in the McFly documentary as well but hey oh and Gary posted a picture of himself with Harry today oh, he's trying to get in on Harry it's what it is he's trying to steal Harry's fandom that's it that's what I said too okay so if there's no do you want to talk about the thing you did with Danny that we sponsored Oh, we sponsored a, um, a Remember Betty fundraising evening. So we, we sponsored the dance party bit. Um, it was fun. It was good fun. I planned, I wasn't, I'm not quite up to DJ live from my bedroom. I don't have any turntables. So I, uh, <laughs> I pre-recorded it. <laughs> See me the there. Fact uh, you, uh, 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 the fact that you call, you know, I said to you a while what ago. The, what do the grown-ups call them? <laughs> I said to you a while ago about language. <laughs> Old-fashioned language. <laughs> go, 
<laughs> like when I talk about going to the pictures. The pictures, yeah. You're doing it again. Turntables. What do they yeah. call decks? Decks, yeah. For yeah. Fuck's sake. Anyway, good. It went down. I'm not well, talking then. to you now. Have fun with your <laughs> podcast. Carry on, mate. <laughs> oh dear. I think I get away with being down with the kids, and then it's those little tells. I yeah. have my tells when when I it's, use. It's actually language very, that my nan would have. It's very English. It's very English language. Yeah, it's um. I like who, it. Who'd have good. thought it from me? Who works for Her Majesty's PA? Her Maj. Who would be very English. Yeah, I know. We want to talk about famous old celebrities who keep dying inconveniently. I know. Sean Sean Connery, Des oh, O'Connor, Des is Jeffrey gone. Palmer. Who else? Oh, uh, the Yorkshire Bobby Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> not just... P.S. Utcliffe. <laughs> National treasure, P.S. Utcliffe. <laughs> I mean... In a similar vein, as in they could have been separated at birth. <laughs> Bobby Ball. <laughs> Sorry, this is very oh geographically <laughs> narrow. <Yeah>. It's very. <laughs> it is. It is. It's very British. Well, our listeners in the UK are going to be pissing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like I've had a drink, mate, and I haven't. Oh. It gives you sat upright. I find sitting up really, really makes me want to pass out. Oh dear, that's a really sad, um, Please sad state to be in. Yeah. When was the last time you left the house, mate? I went out in the week. I had to go to the dentist. <laughs> Which week? <laughs> <laughs> this one. The oh, last okay. one. You went to the I, dentist. Yeah, I've been to the dentist twice in the past two weeks. Once oh, to see careful. the hygienist because I refused to see the dentist till the hygienist had had a go at me. Yes, and then I and I'm back at the dentist again this week too. So. Why? What's wrong with your teeth? No, no, hygienist, which I wanted because I've kind of like been in the house. Let's just right. let her attack me. I haven't yeah, been, yeah. seen her for a year, and then so then I had a checkup. I, I was due a filling, right? And he was like, "No, come in for a checkup first. And I was like, "What are you checking up? You know, I need a filling." <laughs> but he did a checkup anyway, and then I'm having the filling that we already knew I needed. This right? Week. Okay, got it. Blimey. Is that right? Yeah. That's made I'll, me out of breath recounting that. <laughs> Can I just say that the Remember Betty dance party, so it was like a half hour of music. Yeah. It's the most exercise, one, the most fun I've had for months, just dancing yeah. around my bedroom. But two, my Fitbit thought I was uh, in the middle of, like, <laughs> I was having some kind of mass palpitation thing going on. <laughs> Never moved so much. It was like, hello, what's going on here? <laughs> it's when it starts buzzing, going, you've hit your goal, your set goal. And you're like, what? Just been dancing. I, like when, I like it when he does that when you're in the car because the movement of you doing the steering wheel is like walking. Yeah. So you're sat in the car and it's like, congratulations. You're like, brilliant. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes mine does it when I'm knitting. <laughs> like every stitch is a step. Anyway, um, okay. Can't have track. Amy's got the boy band of the week, everyone. Yeah, I know. Well, Shock horror. Amy. Yeah. One, when's the last time you did one? Oh, don't put me on the spot. I don't know. Hanson? <laughs> Episode <laughs> I don't, four. I don't know. <laughs> no, that was Jonas. I don't know. I can't remember okay. who the last one I did Carry was. On. Are you going to tell us who it is? Or you, I mean, I know who it is. I, it's, if you're going to make me guess, it's going to be really easy. But Okay. Um, it's Blue. <clears throat> From Blue. From Blue. We're doing Blue this week. So... 
Get yourself comfortable. Have a sit down. Put your feet up. Light a cigarette. <laughs> Already done. See that? Amy, okay. Amy, Amy's watching me on Zoom. It's very weird. I'm. I'm going to say this is a. You're going to go to sleep, aren't you? <laughs> I was about to say this is probably. I'm going to estimate this is going to take four or five fags to get through this one. Okay. For our American listeners, that's um cigarettes. Yeah, cigarettes. <laughs> I don't have a load of gay men lined up to see how long it takes Amy to get to blue. <clears throat> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Carry on. Anthony Costa was born on the 20... No, I fucked that already. Anthony Costa was born on the 23rd of June, 1981 in Edgware, North London. He attended Hendon School in Barnet. His father is Greek Cypriot and his mother is Jewish. Uh, one of Costa's earliest television roles was as a pupil in Stephen Moffat's sitcom Chalk. He then went on to appear in the BBC children's drama Grange Hill. Love Grange Hill. I know. That's Sausage on a Fork. Such a, a classic. Mr. McCl- Mrs. Mr. McCluskey. Mrs. McCluskey. Mrs. McCluskey. Who was yeah. the man with the tash? That teacher. Um, Bronson. Yes. Yeah. Anthony was considered the confident one and also the joker. He had started in musicals at school. He was Greek like George Michael. So uh, George was his idol and he started a George Michael tribute act. As a 17 year old, which was in 1998, he sang karaoke every Friday at a place in North London called the G Spot, (laughs) where he met a group of guys who used to turn up and perform. They never really seemed to like Anthony, apart from one of them, who was called Duncan, who always spoke to him. The others thought Anthony... I just say, late 90s, you're a bunch of young lads and your choice of a night out is karaoke bar. Yeah. Well, they wanted to sing, didn't they? They were like budding performers. Carry on. (laughs) We know how I feel about karaoke. Oh my God, I love karaoke so much. So these guys never seemed to like Anthony, apart from one of them who was called Duncan, who always spoke to him. The others thought Anthony was weird because he turned up with his dad every week. Uh, But Anthony says his dad drove him there because he couldn't drive yet. And he supported his singing instead of him hanging around on the streets. Duncan James was born on the 7th of April 1978 and he grew up an only child in Dorset. He was raised primarily by his mother and grandparents after his father abandoned his mother before he was born. He was raised a strict Catholic and educated at Dumpton School, where his grandfather, a former military man, worked as a music teacher. He also attended Milden, Milden School, Corfe Hills School and Sidmouth College. At the age of 15, he played Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream and he played Dr. Watson in Sherlock Holmes for Sidmouth Youth Theatre. So these two guys, both actors, both singers. Got it. Both like a bit of karaoke, going out with their dad. No, not going out with their dad. Duncan, no, Duncan, dad. Duncan, no. <laughs> on, the ni- on the 19th of May, 1999, the search for a new boy band began with auditions broadcast on ITVs this morning. Spearheaded by evil demon Simon Cowell with Ray Hedges, who's an English songwriter and record producer and who has worked with Take That Westlife, Boyzone, PJ and Duncan, etc. That's about to say, where have we heard Ray Hedges? Yeah. Like PJ and Duncan episode. Yeah. And uh, Kate... had something to do with Upside Down as well. Uh, maybe, yeah. And Kate Thornton, who was a TV presenter and a former editor of Smash Hits, I believe. Yes, she was. She was the youngest editor. So I think she started editing Smash Hits when she was like 17 or 18 or something like I that. I knew you would know this. Yeah. 
within the group of nine guys auditioning on this morning were a 21-year-old named Will Young, a guy called Declan Bennett, who is in a band called Point Break and then went on to star in EastEnders as a member of the Cotton family, a 14-year-old named Lee Ryan, whose Auntie Joan had sent off the application form <laughs> and had lied about his age, saying he was 16. He turned up wearing a silver suit, two sizes too big for him, which, weirdly, he'd bought off Dave Berry in a shop in Greenwich. <laughs> The guy um, from XFM, the radio guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, a 17-year-old called Michael, who looks suspiciously like Anthony Costa from Blue. <laughs> and at least one Scott Lee. Uh, the clips are worth a watch. It's hosted by lovely Karen Keating, who has been dead a very long time now. And it's really yeah. lovely to see her again. Simon Cow had said, we usually... Is this- is, this is pre-expected pre, days. Okay. Yeah, this is pre-everything, pre-pop stars, pre-pop idol. So Simon Cowell was not a well-known face at this point, and it's his old face. <laughs> <laughs> so he had said, we usually throw them in a house for three or four months, and it's absolutely kill or cure. Meanwhile, Kate Thornton was all, we're looking for the X Factor in a foreshadowing of audition shows to come. <clears throat> Side note. It makes yep. sense to me now why Simon never wanted Will to win Popeye's All because he already knew him and mm. had like discarded him. Um, and I'm certain that back then Simon or the music industry in general probably just wrote off anyone they'd already seen and gone, oh no, not good enough. So it must have been absolutely lit because he was mean to Will through Popeye's All. Yeah. I know I didn't see it because I wasn't in the country, but I know he was really mean to him and he really wanted Gareth to win and Gareth Gates did not. Anyway, back to that day. So um, Anthony says in the book, Blue, All Rise, Our Story, which I got a lot of information from. At the time, they didn't know who Simon Cowell was and they were far more intimidated by Kate Thornton. Um, He said, Anthony went on to audition and he said, my name's Michael and I'm from Edgware, North London, and sang a bad rendition of George Michael's Outside. It's not great. It's not Can great. I ask why he's calling himself Michael? Do we know? <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. We'll come into that. We'll come into that so, slightly. So Lee Anthony's had said... not an odd name. <laughs> Just go with it, mate. Lee said in the book that when Anthony got up and said his name was Michael, and obviously Lee was lying about his age, he thought, hold on a minute, is anyone telling the truth here? <laughs> but Anthony said, I don't know what happened. I opened my mouth and it just came out. <laughs> he forgot his name so because he was singing a George Michael song he said I think I just opened my mouth and was like oh my name's Michael (laughs) so anyway I think it was probably they were just overwhelmed at the idea of performing on live tv so Lee sang Swear It Again by West uh, Westlife which I sang for about three hours solidly after watching that video um Anthony was not selected for the boy band Lee was as was Will Young um but Lee and Anthony swapped numbers because they got on quite well so so this the the boy band is not blue it's not blue okay that that boy band went nowhere okay but lee and michael i mean anthony (laughs) remained friends following the meeting so lee ryan born 17th of june 1983 was uh born in chatham kent his parents split up when he was six years old lee mostly lived with his mother sister Gemma, and his grandmother 
He went to Bedenwell School before attending performing arts schools, including Welling School and the independent performing arts school Belcanto London Academy, where he first developed his talent. And then he went on to the independent fee paying theatre school, Sylvia Young Theatre School and the Italia Conti Academy of Theatre Arts. So... Duncan had grown up in a single mother family. She was a nurse and he spent a lot of time with his grandparents. His granddad was a music teacher and taught Duncan about music and playing piano. He wasn't allowed pop music in the house, um, but he was a massive Kylie fan. Shocker. Um, He sang as an altar boy in church. He loved Heidi High and was desperate to become a red coat. And he became one singing for Haven in Bridport for a year. A horrible feeling. I'm Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> Were you an altar boy? No, but I loved Heidi High. It was great. Although it I was, was allowed great. pop music in the house, so okay, yeah. scratch that. I, I, I can confirm I am not Duncan from Blue. Okay. Well, he loved the musical aspect, um, and after he did a year for Haven, he moved to London and joined a boy band called Volume Five. They lived on Oxford Street and slept in bunk beds in their manager's apartment and were, by his own words, shit. Um, the biggest just thing. Say, like someone bringing people to London for a job and putting them up in their apartment in bunk beds. Nowadays, you get arrested for that. Like yes. you get jailed for. Uh, people trafficking yeah that's it so <laughs> the biggest thing they did was turning on the walthamstow christmas lights oh easily not available yeah uh the next band he was in was a boy girl group called tantrum uh those who auditioned for tantrum included myling class rita simons who is roxy from eastenders uh, ziggy lichman who went on to be in northern line and big brother and a bloke called jonas who went on to be a newsreader on channel five <laughs> Duncan was in Tantrum for a year and during that time he lost both his grandparents and so the band folded Um, he had some inheritance from them he put a deposit on a rental house in East Finchley and took some time out worked as a barman and a perfume salesman in Selfridges while he carried on going to auditions while living with six guys in a shared house who sat around smoking weed so we're now at 2000 five were on their way out And a young man called Daniel walked into Virgin Records, blagged his way into Hugh Goldsmith's office. Hugh Goldsmith was the head of Virgin Records at the time and told him he wanted to put together a boy band to fill the gap. He managed to get him to agree to fund it with the caveat that if he failed to deliver in three months, he'd have to pay him back. No pressure, mate. No pressure. Yeah. Hugh Goldsmith came from RCA Records, who were responsible for Take That's Early Success. And his signings at Virgin included Billy Piper, Martin McCutcheon and Atomic Kitten. Lee was the cheeky one with the amazing voice. He had a show mom who supported his stage school education and said his singing was more important than his schoolwork. He left school at 15 thinking he knew everything he needed. Um, he was, by all accounts, not a great student, but he has ADHD and dyslexia. Um, and he took drugs as a youngster. He went on to work on a market stall and as a roofer. Uh, Anthony Lee and Duncan all read the stage. It was kind of like their Bible. And they got auditions from the back of the magazine. We've heard this before, yes. haven't we? Great boy bands are formed in the, 
the back of the stage between the sauna adverts. (laughs) Uh, Duncan was the pretty boy, the Brad Pitt clone with the floppy hair and husky voice. He had auditioned for Daniel Glattman and then bumped into Anthony and Lee again at a singing lesson that all three of them had kept crossing paths at auditions at the time. Daniel liked that Anthony and Duncan had known each other for some time and he said of them and Lee, the three of them came in and I was completely blown away by the incredibly talented stars that stood before me and he put them into the band along with two other guys called Richard and Spencer. The guys liked Richard but never gelled with Spencer. They got to the point of being en route to signing their record contract before the label decided the lineup wasn't right and they ditched Richard and Spencer. (laughs) They felt guilty about Richard, but Spencer not so much. And they were basically in a cab on their way to the label to sign and they got a, Duncan got a phone call and they said we don't know how you're going to do this but you need to get that cab stopped and get out and come here with just Anthony and Lee they got to the label and they they asked the guys if they would sign as a three which they did agree that they would do but it was collectively decided that they needed a fourth member wait they so went- who did they ditch out of the cab Oh, um, Richard and Spencer. Oh, okay. Got you. I thought they'd ditched them already and then they would ditch no. more people. Okay. No, no, no. They, they ditched them. That's how the label made them do it. <laughs> Instead of being honest. I wonder what they said. Yeah. Um, so they went on to have auditions at Pineapple Dance Studios for their fourth member, but they couldn't find anyone that fit. And one day Lee decided his housemate, Simon, should join. Simon Solomon Webb was born on the 30th of March 1978 in Moss Side, Manchester. His parents were of St. Kitts and Nevis descent. Simon said in in an interview with the Metro in 2014, I had great prospects when I was younger of being a professional footballer. I got injured, though. Then I lost my girlfriend and my mother had moved back to Manchester from Birmingham. So I was on my own. It was a shit time. I lost two stone. I moved back to Manchester to be with my mum. I needed someone to tell me that everything was going to be okay. I quickly found out being back at home that I didn't want to be a part of what was going on. You know, Moss Side being Moss Side. Mm. There'd been 42 shootings over two weeks and I was at a crossroads. I was finding it hard to get a job and I had to make some hard decisions. I started training in the gym and entered a modelling competition, which is where I met Lee. The first time I saw him, he seemed different to anybody that I'd ever met. In these auditions, everyone was... silver suit. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. In these auditions, everyone was so reserved, but not Lee. He was the life and soul in the room. As soon as Lee opened his mouth about a band, I knew the project was going to be big. Unfortunately, nothing came of the modelling competition for a year and a half, but then Lee called me. I didn't even have his number saved in my phone, but Lee would call me sporadically and I always recognised the last three digits of his number. Six, six, six. My granddad was what on an his... indictment of his friendship with like, I don't know, I, I didn't even like him enough to save his number, but yeah. the fucker would not stop calling. <laughs> so I knew the last three numbers. Yeah. Um, My granddad was on his deathbed in the year 2000. He always said to me that my problem was that I always waited for things to happen rather than to go for them. I wanted to move to London, but I knew nobody and I was at a crossroads again. I had to question whether I joined the masses or whether I should stay strong and believe what was in my heart. On the day that my granddad died, Lee called me and it was like my granddad was sending a message. Lee persuaded me to move into his house unbeknown to Lee's mum at that time. Um, (laughs) Lee invited him, didn't ask his mum. 
people need to remember that I didn't know this boy well, but he had it in his heart to look after me when I had nobody else in London. I didn't know where my life was leading. And when I got to London, it was so hard. Lee was always the one that helped me to forget my problems. So once he got to London, Lee had encouraged him to go and audition for Daniel, the manager. But Simon had had reservations because he was like, what if I get into the band? And then Lee doesn't. And Lee has invited me and I've stolen his audition. Um, However... Simon obviously doesn't think Lee's good enough to be in the band. <laughs> yeah, what maybe. happens when I get in and they've rejected Lee? Because I like, think he's I think what great. what that a lot of people say um, as we go further through is that Lee doesn't present very well when you meet him and talk to him. Yeah, he's lively and an- animated and stuff, but you don't really ever take him seriously as a performer until you hear him sing, mm. and then he's like amazing. So um, Lee had got into the band, but Simon and Daniel, the manager, didn't get off on the right foot. Uh, Simon was a similar age to him and he still had his moss side attitude. Um, But a couple of weeks later, Lee came home to persuade him to audition again. But Simon thought he'd burnt that bridge. So Simon was the cool one of the four of them. He was a model with long bleached blonde hair. Um, He lived with Lee and his mum for six months in the end. He was working and writing songs at the time. He had a friend called Ruth who had a friend who was a producer at Virgin and she had recommended Simon audition for this band that she'd heard of, uh, completely not knowing that Simon lived with Lee, who was already in the band. Um, He saw that as a sign essentially two routes to the same destination he went in he apologized to Daniel and auditioned and he met Anthony properly who he didn't really know Anthony was always suspicious of newcomers and very much took the attitude that if he didn't like Simon it wasn't going to happen thankfully they got along Hugh Goldsmith at Virgin Records his sidekick Justine at the label wanted Simon to ditch the long hair Simon was really worried that he, that would cost him his loot, his um, modelling career because other black guys all had shaved their hair off and he felt that it was his USP. Made him stand out, yeah. Exactly. Um, a week later, he was signed as part of the band and Simon strolled into the label with a shaved head. <laughs> and everyone, which apparently everyone was just like, oh my God, you're so handsome. I mean, he is handsome. Naming the band was hard. Lee wanted to go with the name Shanice, which apparently was the name of a hairdresser's he knew. (laughs) I think it was his mum's friend's hairdresser or something. Um, Duncan had suggested four souls, but Anthony said that was asking to be called four arseholes or four skins. Exactly where I was going already. That idea was canned as well. Uh, The label wanted a name that didn't scream boy band. Um, So Simon had been thinking about artists like Pink and Black Sabbath and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and how they all had colours in their names. And they were on the tube one day. And he suggested blue because they were on the tube heading for the blue line at the time. And they were all like, yeah, all right, that sounds cool. So they called the label and they, the label were like, guys, we've thought of a name. And they were like, no, we've thought of a name. And the label was like, no, you're going to be called blue. The so they both come up with the same name. And Lee started leaping around saying, it's a sign. They're big into their signs, these guys, aren't they? I mean, there's probably lots of signs on the tube, but carry on. Uh, Duncan and Anthony both said they spent a lot of the early time in the band in a heightened stage of paranoia, having seen how quickly Richard and Spencer had been cast out. 
Simon said Daniel acted as a great manager, filtering out info on a need to know basis from the label. He was completely unflappable and never let them in on any pressure that he was under, which personally I think is a sign of an excellent manager. At first, they spent nights at pubs and clubs performing, daytime in schools performing to unimpressed kids, and then they would do photo shoots, etc., and head to the studio to write and record. They started recording their debut album and had to all jostle for position. Duncan was used to being the lead singer in the bands that he had been, been in previously, but Lee was so good. Simon said he felt like the weak link vocally, but he had experience with industry knowledge and songwriting because he'd been involved with his, I think it was his cousin's band. Um, and then the label saw Duncan as the most articulate and he was the designated spokesperson. They were like, <laughs> you do the talking. Um, Lee was a terrible speaker by his own admission, being dyslexic and having ADHD he says there's a lot going on inside my head. And he was only really <laughs> taken seriously as the cute one when he was heard singing. Blue took their first paycheck and booked a lad's holiday to Tenerife, where one night while walking down the street singing, they were started on by a group of lads who said, these guys look like a boy band. Um, and it erupted into a fight. They fought them off and then they said that the experience bonded them because no one legged it. They all stayed to fight as a unit. They also, in their book, likened themselves to the A-team. So Anthony was kind of the leader um, he was Hannibal. Uh, Simon was BA. Lee was Howling Mad Murdoch. And Duncan James from Blue was Face. Okay. I can, the only mm -hmm. one of those I can see is Duncan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so their first album, All Rise, was produced by Stargate, who had done S Club Party. Um, and despite some scepticism from the band when hearing early cuts, they did a really good job. And the guys realised that they needed to get back in their box and let the producers <laughs> do what they did best. They released their first single, All Rise, from All Rise, in May 2001, and it sold 200,000 copies. It reached number four on the UK singles chart. Their first experience of being mobbed was not long after at a Smash Hits tour show at the Hammersmith Apollo. Odeon. Odeon. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. They went on to do a bunch of industry showcases and from there were booked to do a week on the bed on the big breakfast. And it snowballed from there. Yeah. Was that with Paula or was Paula uh, done then? Paula, was, uh, Paula went a little bit after this, I think. Um, no. Paula was gone. Paula was yeah. gone, I think. Um, so it snowballed from there. They would get um, chased on the street and people were constantly saying, oh, I see you on the telly this morning. Um, and from that, they went on to do SMTV Live and Top of the Pops, do it performing All Rise. They were en route to a festival where they pulled up at some lights and they could hear All Rise on the radio in a builder's van next to them. And they popped their heads out of the sunroof in the windows to yell, that's us! at him and he was like oh piss off and drove off their follow-up single too close was released in august 2001 and peaked at number one i feel like maybe there needs to be a content warning here because we're going to talk about 9-11 next um, okay. but it's just a really important part of their story so i think it's really important that we include it 
So on the 10th of September 2001, Blue flew to New York City to film the video for If You Come Back, which was to be their third release. The following day, they got up at 5am, left their hotel in Soho and travelled to Brooklyn to shoot the video right by the river with the Manhattan skyline in the background. While they were in hair and makeup, their coordinator rushed in and said, there's been a plane crash at the Trade Centre. And they were like, oh, is everyone all right? Like... And uh, then they heard a shout from outside and they went out to see all the smoke billowing from the North Tower before watching the second plane hit. Their crew at that point were already filming everything and that footage went on to be sent all around the world. They discussed this in detail in their book, which I'm I'm not going to go into too much detail, but um, they said that they wanted to, because they got asked about it so much immediately afterwards, they never really spoke about it. And they said, this is the only time we ever want to kind of talk about it. And then it's out there and we don't have to ever address it again, which you kind of understand. Mm. So they say that they all held hands and prayed and then they decided they needed to get out of the city and they jumped into an old Winnebago to get to upstate New York. While they were en route, a tyre blew out and the RV skidded across the highway on two wheels. (laughs) They were lucky that their driver was an incredible ex-Marine military driver who they say saved all of their lives. They couldn't get a phone single to let anyone in the UK know that they were okay. And Duncan said after three days when he finally got hold of his mum, she was so choked up with relief she couldn't speak. They couldn't then get out of the US because all the planes were grounded. Um, And in the hotel that they were staying at also was Atomic Kitten, who were on the same label. And it was during that time that Lee and Liz McLaren got to know each other and bonded. And they later went on to date. And I think they got engaged as well, actually. Um, It was another traumatic event that bonded the band further. They say, looking back, once they got home, they probably should have taken some time off to kind of deal with it but they just got back to work and kept on going they were tired emotionally weak and suffering with exhaustion and shock the following month blue was being interviewed by british newspaper the sun and were asked about 9-11 and their experience of watching the twin towers fall they'd been doing a lot of promo interviews and photo shoots all day and coupled with lee being tired strung out and having adhd and he would often mentally zone out during long days of promo. On being asked about 9-11, he replied, what about whales? What about all the wars we don't hear about? The animals that need saving? This New York thing is being blown out of proportion. The other members of the band tried to silence Lee, but he went on, who gives a fuck about New York when elephants are being killed? He was asked then to repeat it on the record, And he went ahead and said it all over again. And he added things about starving children, AIDS and famine. Lee later said he was tired and 18 and thought his opinion mattered. He said it all came out wrong. When the paper came out, the headline said, fuck New York. And Lee thought, I never said that. This caused a huge media backlash that resulted in Blue losing a record deal in the United States. And campaigns to sack Lee Ryan from Blue from Blue. They offered to donate all their monies from their next single to a 9-11 charity. They received death threats from American fans. They were shouted at in the street saying that they hoped the members from Blue would die. Manager Daniel ended up in hospital with stress-related gastroenteritis. The band didn't blame Lee and refused to throw him out because they'd seen how it had happened. Duncan called it an innocent fuck-up and Lee publicly apologised multiple times. 
they stuck together, worked their way through it. The other three were very vocal that it wasn't going to happen. Lee would not be removed from the band. Lee said in the book that he was mouthy and opinionated and couldn't believe how much people cared about what he had to say. Despite the backlash, the single If You Come Back came out in November and went straight to number one, and the album did the same a few weeks later. The album All Rise was released in time for Christmas and reached number one, eventually selling in excess of 1.8 million copies in the UK. It peaked at number one on the UK Albums Chart and was certified four times platinum in the UK, and it spent 63 weeks on the UK Top 75 Albums Chart. The final single from the album, Fly By Two, reached number six in March 2002. Also in 2002, Blue won their first Brit Award for British Breakthrough Act. They spent the rest of 2002 on tour. Simon said that in their first year to get, oh, we're supposed to do a drinking game. Every time I said Simon <laughs> says, we're going to take a shot. <laughs> Fuck, I forgot. Simon said that in their first year together, they only had 14 days off. Blue's second album, One Love, was released in October 2002, entering at number one on the UK albums chart and selling more than 150,000 copies. Three singles were released on. from that. So the first album sold 1.8 million. And I, think second... that was, I think that was in total 1.8 oh, okay. million. Oh, so, so this is the first date. week sales. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Karen, sorry. Uh, no, no, it's fine. It's never that clear when you're looking at this sort of thing, what when these stats are the for. Time but yeah, scale, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, three singles were released from the album. One Love peaked at number three. One sorry. Love. Yeah. Oh, one Loaf of Your Mother's, mother's Pride. pride yeah. <laughs> sorry seems to be the hardest word featuring vocals from Elton John who was one of Lee's idols. Uh, that had actually started as a cover, but the label orchestrated the duet since Elton was a big fan of Blue. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> um, and that Elton, not, Elton popped up in the McFly story as well, didn't he? Elton he's a, pops up in everyone's he's story. He's a very big supporter of other artists. I give him that. I mean, he, like... He likes boy bands. He likes pretty boys in boy bands. I, I think it's all round a big supporter of other yeah. artists. Yeah. Yeah, and not a fan of maybe, me. Maybe Elton secretly is the boy band whisperer we're looking for. Ooh. Amy and I have been doing a little research onto who's the true boy band whisperer. Like, yeah. everyone says it's Simon Cowell, but no, actually his track record's not great. Not good. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, yeah. carry on with your story about Blue. <laughs> sorry seems to be the hardest word got to number one and you make me wanna which peaked at number four another song super sexual was issued in parts of south america and spain in order to promote the band in that in those regions i don't think i know that song at this stage lee was drinking a lot and being promiscuous using terrible chat-up lines and there was a massive <laughs> i don't we didn't hear any of them um and there was a massive number of kiss and tells in the papers um he basically had just decided to make the most of it while he could uh, duncan also had lots of women at this point it was only in his 20s that he realized he might not be what he called entirely straight anthony said it was just impossible to resist the lifestyle that was on offer Lee behaved badly after the whole Sun interview and gave journalists stupid stories to see if they printed it. Uh, the manager tried to stop him and told him that the press could be his friend, but he refused to believe it. Because of this, everyone thought he was thick. 
He wasn't thick. He was just misbehaving. He got arrested one night and called the manager for help. Um, he'd smashed a lot of cameras and thought he was beating the system. He was also a frivolous spender buying things like grand pianos, which he couldn't play, and a Porsche that he couldn't drive. Um, at the Queen's Jubilee in 2002, they got to perform with Tom Jones and Phil Collins, and afterwards they got introduced to the Queen. Even Lee was lost for words. Duncan said the person who made him most starstruck was Madonna, who he bumped into at a party in LA. Meanwhile, Anthony's lifelong love of George Michael peaked when he finally met George at Top of the Pops. George approached Anthony and said, hello, fellow North London Greek boy. You can hear George Michael <laughs> saying that, can't yeah. you? And mentioned um, his cousin who knew Anthony's family. Anthony said he was unable to speak words back to him. I mean, I know that feeling. <laughs> so that's really sweet though and able to speak words you see him going two years later he bumped into him again outside a radio studio in london george called him over and said i appreciate all the nice things you say about me in interviews we all have good times and bad times keep going and gave him a first print of his new single anthony said in the book he said it's broken my heart that he left us but i'm so glad we had that moment and i'm so glad i said all those things about him and that he heard them you should always tell people who you admire how you feel about them because you never know which reminds me of the time i met simon webb from blue who was djing at a gig that i had a band playing in i told my singer that i really liked one of simon's songs and she was like oh you should go and tell him that i bet he'd love it and i just got anxiety i got sage fright and didn't they were on tour the one love tour 2002 to 2003 and then at the start of 2003 blue won their second brit for british pop act in june 2003 hugh and david nicholson of 1970s scottish band blue took the group to court, attempting to sue them and their record label for £5 million. The case was a high-profile, high-court case over the rights to use the name Blue. After some negotiation, (laughs) sounds like someone got paid off if you ask me, uh, the two groups agreed to drop the case and were both allowed to continue to be known as Blue and to use the name commercially. Weird. Weird. Yeah, weird. (laughs) Uh, Their third album, Guilty, (laughs) which coming after a court case is classic, (laughs) uh, was released in autumn 2003, entering number one on the UK album chart and selling 100,000 copies on the week of release. So that's all three of their albums now that have got number one? Yes. And they're not having a, like, there's no downward curve? Not yet. Is there? No. No. Uh, The album spawned four singles, including the title track Guilty, co-written by Gary Barlow. I've which heard was of him oh uh, yeah remind me again so uh, no it sounds familiar um which was the most successful single from the album and peaked at number two so the album went to number one but the singles didn't As, but number two's not shabby is it it's oh, not it's like not we're not we're, we're not seeing a proper like the boy band arc is dropping here it's not 25 no <laughs> um it's funny actually when you listen to guilty it sounds like gary's written it you know oh, how, really? like, I'm always saying that, like, oh, I like Max Martin's music, like, because it has quite a specific sound in a way. You can I, hear that in this, yeah. Defo. Uh, the three other singles from the album were Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours, featuring vocals from Stevie Wonder and Angie Stone, which peaked at number 11. Breathe Easy, written by Lee Ryan from Blue, which peaked at number four. And Bubbling, which went to number nine. 
The album ended up selling more than 1 million copies in the UK alone. Um, and there was a further song called The Gift released to promote the album in Japan. Uh, it was released in the United States as well in November. Um, and it was certified two times platinum in December 2003 in the UK. It was particularly successful in the UK, Europe, Japan, in the UK. Yeah, Japan. 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 <laughs> I don't know why that came out so weird. Japan and New Zealand and um, worldwide has sold more than 2.5 million copies. Um, and collectively, the album and singles have sold more than 5 million copies worldwide. Almost as many listeners as we've got. <laughs> yeah. And then they went on the Guilty Tour, which was 2003 to 2004. Uh, in November of 2003, Blue featured in the film Love Actually when Bill Nye drew We Have Little Pricks on their poster. <laughs> Do you remember that it was like a whole thing about him yeah. getting to number one to beat Blue? Um, a year later, in 2004, November 2004, they released The Best of Blue, which was a greatest hits compliment compilation the album spawned the singles curtain falls which peaked at number four get down on it and only words i know which both peaked at number two the album peaked at number two on the uk albums chart and was awarded a double platinum certification following the release of the best of blue group members simon webb and anthony costa made the decision to release an album compiling a selection of the group's b-sides remixes and previously unreleased material they then went on the Greatest Hits tour, 2004 to 2005. So at this point, they had had three UK number one albums in three years, 16 million records sold, number one records in more than 40 countries, two Brit Awards, and they were left wondering, was this their lot? Like, when is this going to end and what's next? The press had started to ramp up the gossip and then out of nowhere, Lee got a new manager, Jason. They, oh, they Daniel. Where's Daniel gone? Yeah, fuck Daniel. He's got Jason now. Um, they, they talk a lot about how they're quite um, conflict-averse. So whenever there was an issue in the band, they never really raised it. Um, so this really did feel like it came out of nowhere. Lots of outside pressure. There was lot, They had lots of outside pressure from people asking about what was going to happen next. Um, Lee got his own dressing room and um, it just became strange and caused a divide. Lee tells it differently. He says he needed space to warm up as he was responsible for hitting the high notes and that the others would come in all laughing and joking when he was trying to take it seriously. He says... This, looking... is, how, this is how the end of five started, isn't it? When they yeah. all had separate dressing rooms. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is I feel like they're so they're young guys and they just don't know how to have that conversation or how to address yeah. things in a grown-up manner. Looking back, Lee says he thinks someone should have pulled him aside and pointed out how it looked when he had his own dressing room. The energy was waning and no one's hearts was in, were in it anymore. They'd worked hard and they had nothing to show for it financially. And Lee mostly due to his overspending. <laughs> Hugh, Hugh Goldsmith was leaving the label they all felt it was the people around them whispering in their ears about how they could be better on their own and Lee was told he'd be the next Justin Timberlake and he believed it in the end it was a tarot card reading that convinced Lee he had to go it alone they announced that they would pause go into hiatus to devote themselves to solo careers for some time there was no split row or falling out things had just started to go a bit wayward 
there was the unspoken subject of the relationship post record company like who would they bet on as a solo artist Duncan said that the record label never let them never let them in on what might happen and they weren't prepared for the end of the band or or what they would do next Um, he was approached by Andrew Lloyd Webber who asked him to record a song for him and that went to number one in the midweek charts Anthony went out and got an acting agent Simon got a solo record deal and none of them discussed it at all ever they just wanted to avoid any conflict Manager Daniel sat leader down and told him he had to stay until the end of the tour because I think he was like, mm. I'm out. And he said, no, you have to stay. See this through. You owe it to the band. Duncan was still hiding his sexuality and thought he should keep it a secret until after Blue because he didn't want to let the band down. He was scared no one would want to work with him again and that that would hurt the band. So he didn't really oppose the split as a result. Mm. They finally had a conversation and decided they were going to take a month off, which turned into a year and then four years. Duncan went on to host the National Lottery. You know, the results, they, they, it used to be a TV show, didn't it? Yeah. He said he had a panic attack one night when one of the machines broke. Uh, he was taking antidepressants at the time and hiding his sexuality and he shot himself on live TV. <laughs> He actually showed himself. Oh, it's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> he was offered um, he was offered parts in Wicked on stage and Chicago, um, and he chose Chicago. He played Billy Flynn. I, I saw him play Billy Flynn in Chicago. He was amazing. And then he was offered a solo record deal and thought staying in the UK would be better than going to Broadway because he was given the option after he'd done Chicago on the West End. Um, he said he didn't enjoy being a solo a soloist, but he did meet a close friend, Sheridan Smith, while doing Legally Blonde. I'm going to say it was around 2005, which is when this is, that I met Anthony Costa at a filming of a TV show called Disco Mania 2. Wow. I think he sang Love Really Hurts Without You. We met a few of them. Gloria Gaynor was there singing her one song. Um, and <laughs> Anthony knew <laughs> he wasn't a Anthony knew he wasn't a strong solo artist, but he went on Nevermind the Buzzcocks and he got absolutely rinsed. I'm going to go ahead and say it, Simon Anstall, bit of a dick. Is a bit of a dick, yeah. Yeah. Uh, He then went on to do I'm a Celebrity in 2005, which he loved. And the following year took part in, here's the first mention of Eurovision, Making Your Mind Up. Um, And he came second. The song that was chosen that year was Daz Sampson singing Teenage Life. Is that the one that danced around a lamppost? I don't know. (laughs) Only you would know about stuff like that. I don't know. Um, Anthony went on to get parts in Blood Brothers, uh, which he absolutely loved. And actually the band got together to go and see him performing in that that one. And then he went on to do Boogie Nights. Initially, the guys in the band had been salaried employees. They spent everything and put no money away for tax. Cliché. Anthony bought a massive house because he thought Blue would last forever. His father had suggested he invested in property, but he probably meant flats in Manchester rather than a mansion in Hertfordshire. (laughs) So on which he was paying seven grand a month on the mortgage. When (laughs) When the band split in 2005, the money was all gone. 
theatre acting didn't pay for the mortgage and the house was repossessed in 2007. He moved to Mill Hill and stayed on his uncle's sofa and then he discovered he owed HMRC £600,000. He entered an IVA. It's, it's a bankruptcy. Agree- it's a it's a it's not bankruptcy. Bankrupt- it's, an, it's it's like that though, isn't yeah. it? It's like a something voluntary agreement. I'm googling. Good good idea. Um, so he said a royalty check had come in for sixty nine grand, and it went straight to pay the tax bill. Like he was twenty five at this point, and a father, and struggling financially. Simon, meanwhile, was considering a Thai boxing career. <laughs> <laughs> you want to well, know what it's IVA is short for Impuesto Sobre El Valor Anadido, the UK what? equivalent of tax. Oh no, that's Spanish. Sorry, that's what an IVA is in Spain. <laughs> Fucking hell! It's like I never knew. I'd never have guessed that. That's like why are you talking Latin? <laughs> <laughs> Individual voluntary agreement. There we go. Meanwhile, Simon was considering a Thai boxing career or something in MotoGP. He was offered a solo deal and they asked him what route he'd like to take, which he was surprised about because he had his whole career dictated previously in blue. He didn't know how to decide. The son had said he would be the British usher. usher, So he kind of went along with R&B, but he said he would rather have done something rock like Lenny Kravitz. But... He didn't want to put too much of himself into it because he didn't think it would be a success. He then went on to do some research on what happened when boy bands split and discovered that usually only one member was successful and he assumed that would be Lee. Um, for the other members, usually only the first album was a success. So he decided to make it the best he could. It's such a shame that he's still, after all this success, and for a boy band, they are have had an incredible amount of success with number one albums that he still has that lack of confidence at yeah. this point that he he can a be a success himself or be make his own decisions or the confidence to go actually i don't care that everyone says i'm going to be usher i want to be lenny like let me yeah. do that thing it, and that yeah. he didn't have the people behind him to encourage him and persuade him that actually, no, you are, dude, you're fine. Like, yeah. just go for it. Well, he won big because he was the most successful <laughs> of the four of them. <laughs> the album Sanctuary was released in November 2005 and sold much better than expected. They thought it would sell, the label thought it would sell around 30,000 copies and it sold 700,000 copies. God, Simon. And was certified two times platinum. It only made it to number seven on the album chart. He cites Bill Withers as a massive inspiration. The song No Worries became a huge hit and changed his life. It reached the top 10, charted all over Europe. And Simon was nominated for the MTV Asia Best Newcomer Award, which he won, beating Pussycat Dolls, Kelly Clarkson and James Blunt. It was a big anthem in Thailand where they were recovering from the tsunami on Boxing Day prior. And they called him, they referred to him as the healing voice of Simon Webb. <laughs> because the album did so well the label decided not to release any more singles and wanted to push ahead with the second album um simon didn't want to do that he thinks it was released too close to the first there wasn't enough promo around it and it was a confusing message for the fans with them not realizing there was new music available the label folded not long after so i do wonder how much of that influenced the decision they were like quick let's just push another make, album out let's just make as much money as we can yeah yeah 
That so sounds sounds very unlike labels to try and make as much money as they can out of boy <laughs> bands and boy band members. So strange. <laughs> Simon says. Simon says he felt lonely. <laughs> have a shot. As, yeah, have a shot. Simon felt lonely as a solo artist, although he and Lee were both promoting their albums at the same time. So they bumped into each other a lot and they often had company at like some of these shows and stuff. They just hung out together. So that was really cool. He turned down a lot of offers for reality TV, but then he accepted I'm a Celebrity in 2008. Um, Anthony was extremely encouraging by saying it was the best thing he'd ever done. Simon struggled with it, the boredom, the cameras in his face, etc. Um, he got involved in a bit of conflict on the show, but he did get through to the semi-finals and afterwards he got lots of offers and he booked Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg and Sheila Hancock. He said they were all left out of touch with reality and how to do the day-to-day things when you come out of a boy band. Um, and also he struggled with mental health issues, mainly anxiety and depression over the years. Lee was considered the golden child, but struggled with his solo career as the label was trying to mould him into something he wasn't. He wanted to do a soul album, but they pushed him towards an indie sound. Maroon 5 were big at the time and they wanted him to be like them. One of his songs did end up on a soundtrack for an Ice Age movie. And as a result, he features a, as a voice on the f- next film and a few of the Italian versions. I'd love to hear Lee Ryan speak in Italian. <laughs> the second album of his never happened because they couldn't see eye to eye. So he fucked off to California to find what he calls peace. While he was there, he met a woman and got into a relationship He started getting offers for reality TV, all of which he turned down. He said he just never fancied it. (laughs) Oh, oh Lee. But knowing he wasn't going to marry this woman after two years of being in California, he decided to come back to the UK and do Hell's Kitchen and was looking forward to being on the show with Gordon Ramsay. Well, Gordon Ramsay had been replaced with Marco Pierre White. And after three days of keeping his mouth shut, Lee had a very polite word with him over his use of a prejudiced word, a slur towards the travelling community that Lee called racist. Marco Pierre White lost his shit and they ended up having a huge row and Lee was thrown off the show. It's funny because I've, I've watched the video and uh, you see Marco being really rattled because Lee went up to him really politely and was like... I just wanted to have a a conversation with you about this thing because I've got friends who are in the traveling community and I just don't think it's cool. They don't like being called that word and et cetera. Um, And um, and Marco was really rattled and his ego was clearly bashed and he he just went on the defensive straight away and started like attacking back. Um, Marco says to Lee as he walks away, "Uh, tiredness affects people in different ways. (laughs) Lee turns around without missing a beat. He goes, so does arrogance. Um, Marco (laughs) accused Lee of being aggressive, which he absolutely wasn't. So verdict, Marco Pierre White is a twat. Which... Uh, Sorry racist twat (laughs) as a result lee came a hero of the tabloids and the traveling community meanwhile duncan was still hiding his secret he'd been dubbed a ladies man by the press but interestingly never a love rat or rogue almost as though they knew you know they were sort of like ladies man duncan james He had dated Catherine Jenkins before either of them were famous and he was good friends with Jerry Halliwell and Tara Palmer-Tompkinson. 
He Hang also on, this is not our second appearance for Catherine Jenkins dating a boy band member. She not dated one? Steve Hart from Worlds Apart. <laughs> oh yeah, I think you're right. I think I think you're right. I think he met her in a club, Duncan James from Lou. Um, he also dated Martine McCutcheon. And when he split up with her, which was amicable, she had said to him, oh, you know, you could have been Mr. Martin McCutcheon. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> During Blue's first For People talk, that don't know, Martin McCutcheon plays the, um, in Love Actually, she's... Hugh Grant's. The secretary or the, the um, Downing Street assistant that yeah. falls in love with the Prime Minister. That's right. During Blue's first tour in 2002... Um, Duncan had become close with one of the male dancers who was gay and once the tour was over Duncan visited him his name's Pete in New York and realized he'd developed romantic feelings for him they started a secret relationship which lasted for four years Duncan was paranoid the whole time he would be outed which put a massive strain on their relationship anytime he thought somebody knew something he would call Pete and be like have you told and all this and Mm. you know it was just a bit of a bit stressful in the end he couldn't take the pressure and he ended things with Pete and started dating a woman called Anya who he fell head over in head over heels in love with that lasted for one year and he realized how much he missed Pete so he flew to LA to surprise him only to be sent packing when Pete told him it wasn't okay to behave that way this did however force him to address his feelings and he and Pete ended up in an on-off relationship over the next few years Eventually, Pete told him he couldn't continue doing it and broke up with him. Duncan was heartbroken. He told no one of this relationship and he was in L.A. devastated and with no one to talk to. He needed to reach out to someone and he decided to reach out to Simon Webb. Oh, I thought Simon... you were going to say Elton John. <laughs> Imagine. Simon was always the keeper of secrets, very trustworthy, and Duncan called him and told him. Simon was wonderful, supportive, and told Duncan to go and speak to his mum, who was in LA with him. Duncan went and woke up his mum and came out to her. He said, I think I'm gay. She was, of course, also very supportive. When Duncan got Probably back to also the... very tired. <laughs> yeah, it was like 3am. <laughs> like, dude, we could have yeah. done this over an omelette. Yeah, I think her biggest concern was that, uh, am I not going to be a grandma? However, Duncan got back to the UK and went on a holiday with some friends to help get over the breakup. And he got a phone call from his friend, ex-girlfriend Claire, to tell him she was three months pregnant with his child. They'd hooked up over the years and this was the result of a night in the Lowry Hotel in Manchester. He came out to her straight away at that point um, and their daughter was born in February the following year. At this stage, Duncan was no longer hiding his no longer hiding his sexuality from his closest friends. In 2007, he did Dancing on Ice, and also in the cast was Stephen Gately from Boyzone. Stephen had come out in 1999. He gave him Stephen gave Duncan a big hug and said to him, "Don't ever let anyone put you down or make you feel ashamed." Lee met his next girlfriend Sammy on MySpace. And they also went on to have a child together in 2008, but the relationship ended. Lee says he's not good with relationships and doesn't know if he ever wants one. I feel you, Lee. At one point, he had become obsessed. <laughs> yeah, he'd become obsessed with drawing and art, and he stayed up all night ignoring his girlfriend at the time. He woke up the next day and the writing was quite literally on the wall. It read, you may learn to draw, but these drawings will never love you. He found that quite funny, I think. 
In August and September 2008, Lee acted alongside Natalie Casey in The Pretender Agenda at the New Players Theatre in London. Oh, earlier that year, he'd been found guilty of assaulting a taxi driver in Oxted and ordered to pay compensation to the victim. Lee's always in trouble. In 2009, the News of the World contacted uh, RIP, contacted Duncan's publicist. You know how it goes. They'd been approached by someone he'd been with. He did a, Duncan did a story and came out as bisexual. He truly believed at the time he was because he'd been in love with women too. But after doing that story, he never was with another woman. They had all stayed in touch sporadically in the non-blue years. They loved and respected one another. There was no rivalry despite attempts from the tabloids to pit them against one another. In 2009, they were approached to perform at the Capital Summertime Ball, which they did. They said no to a permanent reunion and Anthony was a big reason why he was always seen as the negative one, but perhaps he was just more of a realist. He wasn't ready. In November 2010, they were asked to represent the UK in Eurovision. Anthony took some convincing after his efforts in 2006. Duncan was mad keen, said he'd always <laughs> been a huge fan. <laughs> um, How did none of them ever know he was gay? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Simon wasn't keen either, but once they started writing the song, Simon was outvoted three to one and they went for it. He said, that's how it always happened. There was just a vote. And if it was three to one, you went with it. So it was announced on the 29th of January 2011 that Blue would reunite and also represent the United Kingdom in the Eurovision Song Contest 2011 with their entry, I Can. So there was no... Um, song for you know, Europe. No. None they, of that. There was a short period where they did that, where they were just kind of like, Look, this the, the nation voting on it's not working. Yeah. yeah. We're just going to choose our own fucking songs and put yeah. them forward. Yeah. So they were chosen. Uh, their song was called I Can. Uh, it also coincided with the 10th anniversary of the band forming and a one hour documentary, Eurovision, Your Country Needs Blue, was <laughs> broadcast in April and celebrated their preparations for the final. I did watch it on YouTube before. Is it, um, Is it funny? It, I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah. Um, they were one of the only already established acts to perform in Eurovision alongside, not alongside, but in the company of Lulu. Cliff Richard and Celine Dion, who won for Switzerland when she was 19. Have you ever seen that footage? Mm. My God, her face was a mess then, wasn't it? She's all teeth. Her teeth, yeah. They were the first UK representatives since The Shadows in 1975 to have had multiple number one singles in the UK chart prior to appearing in Eurovision. And the first since Sonia in 1993 to have had a number one at all before entering the competition. It was the third time the group had Eurovision ambitions. Remember that Scott Lee who auditioned in 1999 on This Morning? He sang a song in 2005's Making Your Mind Up called Guardian Angel, which was written and composed by Lee Ryan. Obviously, Anthony Costa came second in the 20, 2006, 2006 <laughs> edition of the show with the song It's a Beautiful Thing. And Duncan was a panellist on all episodes of the Eurovision Your Country Needs You series in 2009. He also announced the UK votes in the Eurovision Song Contest 2009 final. They had performed as guests on a pre-Eurovision show in Malta and realised they needed some rehearsal to get them tight as a band again. So went into vocal coaching and worked hard. I'd love to see this because I picture four John Knights on stage looking lost and confused. <laughs> The song I Can premiered on the 11th of March 2011 on the Graham Norton show. 
in the contest they came 11th with 100 points Not what is that we? in french 100 100 points yeah nice after the contest blue said they were victims of political voting claiming they would have finished higher if countries had voted for the performance rather than their neighbors it later turned out when the european broadcasting union who runs eurovision released the split televote and jury results that blue came in fifth place with european voters and the final result was down to coming in 22nd place on the jury vote duncan james i don't think they do jury votes anymore oh don't they no sorry carry on that's all right duncan insisted that the result of their eurovision bid wouldn't affect their uk comeback adding should the worst happen we're still going to press ahead with the album it won't be the last of us we're all fully committed to this band again was that the last of them (laughs) it wasn't (laughs) okay i watched the eurovision performance and while i'm not convinced about their styling although it was fitting for eurovision and i didn't love the choreography i thought they were robbed it was a good song and a good performance. Have you heard the song? I listening to you do this episode, I have vague memories of starting the research on Blue. Oh right. Um and um I'm sure I listened to it then. I'm sure yeah. I went through the Eurovision. Yeah. It's good. So the band was back together and it was time to start on their fourth album. So we're at twenty eleven now. Duncan met a man at the gym who was a manager and wanted to manage the band. They were ready to get working on the right project. This man introduced them. They refer to him as... Not the best business decision. What? Guys, I've I've met this bloke at the gym and (laughs) he's going to be our manager. You'd be like, what? Well, you're right. I've met this bloke at the gym and he's going to decorate the front room. I'd still be like, what? You um, you and Anthony and I would all agree <laughs> with this. So um, this man who they only ever really refer to as this man, they never name him, um, presumably for legal reasons. Um, he introduced them to a second guy. So it would be a management duo. Anthony didn't like the first guy. He felt he was overpromising and being name droppy, etc. But the others were keen. Um, but Anthony was always known as the negative one, so his concerns were shushed away. They decided to make the album the album themselves independently from a label. They went to business school for six weeks to prepare themselves and ensure they wouldn't get screwed over. Their two managers convinced them not to cut corners and to ensure they hired the best producers. And based on their advice and expertise, the band took out a £250,000 loan to cover their costs. They were given prices for everything, but didn't really know enough to question them. So just accepted everything that came in. They went to my... um, Simon said, I think he said it was like um, they turned on a tap and the money Mm. just started coming out. They went to Miami to record in Drake's studio and then to L.A. where Rihanna was recording next door. While they were in Miami, the band had confronted Simon, who was partying and drinking a lot and didn't seem to care if he lived or died. He started to open up to them at that point about his mental health. Remember we mentioned earlier. Mm. Anthony said something started to not feel quite right when they were turning up to work and the producer was late after a late night, which was all on their tab. They were loving making the music. It was flowing like never before, but everything else was falling apart and everyone was asking for more money and they just trusted everyone who was asking and gave it to them. They flew back to London to finish the album. The managers presented them with a contract and Blue told them they would have their lawyer review it. 
one of the managers tried to come into the meeting but the lawyer kicked him out saying it was a conflict of interest the lawyer said they were not signing it it was an old school contract like those in the 90s that artists had tried to get out of i.e george michael who fought sony claiming he had little control over his work and the reason prince changed his name as a rebellion against the label so blue refused to sign and things got nasty the managers presented them with a bill for tens of thousands of pounds for expenses for an entire year. Anthony called this year the bullshit era. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't afford to pay it, especially not on top of the loan repayments they'd taken out for the album. The first manager took it personally and placed an injunction on the album and tried to sue the band. I think this guy was American as well because in the book or the audio book that I listened to when Duncan did an impression of him it was with an American accent okay so um the band tried to use part of their loan to pay him off and then he came after them for future earnings blue put their company into liquidation and then he came after them individually as they were all directors of the company um at this point blue had a new manager called Paul Bailey Paul asked the old manager whether the band could restructure some of the payments to give them a chance to get the album out and make enough money to pay him back. The guy refused. They were gutted because this album they'd written, which they considered to be their best work, was just sitting there unable to be heard. Like Kesha. In the early days of Blue, their first tax bill had come to 400000 each. They'd been advised, use your tax money to buy a house, wait for the market to go up, then pay your tax from the profit you make on the house. But there was a downturn in the market. The Who's house advising was in... them? This, right. is, it the, is it the guy at the gym again? <laughs> well, this is it. The house would then be a negative equity and a big tax bill that's been unpaid with a huge amount of interest on top. Simon says, shot. Take when you make a lot of money you get lots of recommendations for financial experts who may or may not be screwing you over and you just don't know who to trust simon had invested his money in a property portfolio and the bands that he was supporting his monthly outgoings at the height of blue were around twenty thousand pounds anthony also had invested in property at his one house that he didn't have anymore um, Lee had bought a studio, a nice flat overlooking the Thames, a grand piano, piano you know, that he couldn't yeah, play. and a Porsche and, he uh, couldn't drive. <laughs> yeah. And he took his mum to Sandals in the Caribbean, which I always thought was just for couples. So, you know, he'd always been a bit more frivolous. Duncan said they'd lived a champagne lifestyle in the early days and the trouble came after they split and tried to continue to live that life. This old manager told Paul, I'm going to bankrupt the lot of them. But Paul sat the guys down and he said, no, he's not. We're going to get there first. They each declared themselves bankrupt. Duncan first, then Simon, then Anthony, who'd been through the IVA previously. They felt more fairly treated by the receivers than the guy who was chasing them. The lawsuits and the sleepless nights vanished. Lee's bankruptcy was slower because he had very little personal debt. He invested in one of those tax avoidance schemes, which he had been assured was a great idea. Instead, his tax bill rocketed and that was that. Going bankrupt actually made him better off financially because the banks couldn't chase him anymore for interest. They did a um, an interview on this morning not long after that, which is also available on YouTube and worth a watch. Anthony, having been through the IVA, was a bit more um, relaxed about the whole situation. 
he also said something interesting during this time that he wonders if his natural distrust comes from having a constant father figure in his life, which makes me laugh because it sounds like you wouldn't trust your dad. Um, but the other boys didn't. So he said he, he didn't know if it was a question that they were more willing to believe what somebody promised to them. I mean, I hear you, Anthony, because I also have a natural distrust for people, especially those I don't know, and particularly those who seem too good to be true. I've had a lot of instances, actually, where my friends have been like, oh, you're so uptight. What's your problem? But if I know in my gut I don't want to trust someone, that's it. Oh, yeah. I think, and I think some people have a naivety where they will fall for all the bullshit that, that they're being told by a person about themselves. Yeah. Instead of looking behind it and going, OK, so that's what you're saying about you. What What's someone else saying about you? Yeah. What's your motivation for saying this and what are you yeah. saying behind my back? During February 2012, the band embarked on a small tour across Asia, firstly in Manila, performing with fellow boy band A1 and Jeff Timmons from... 98 Degrees. In three special concerts, um, um, so two in Manila, one in Singapore, the tour was billed as Boy Bands, the Greatest Hits Tour. It's funny what they do overseas that we never hear about, Mm. isn't it? On the 22nd of June 2012, the band premiered their new song, Hurt Lovers, during a concert in China. In an, in an interview shortly after the concert, the band claimed that Hurt Lovers was one of the first tracks they recorded after reuniting and that it was an obvious choice for their comeback single. It received positive reception across, across Asia before being released in Germany also. In the late 90s and early noughties, boy bands and pop had been considered uncool and it was all about the indie scene. Then Take That came back in 2006 and had massive sales and success, which tripled anything that indies could deliver. There was clearly a hunger for that kind of pop music. So, post-Eurovision, there wasn't a whole lot of pop around other than what not post-Eurovision that year, not, mm. you know, post-Eurovision. There wasn't a whole lot of pop around other than One Direction with their social media fueled fan base and Adele and Ed Sheeran, who were both getting massive. There was huge nostalgia for bands like Steps 5 and S Club 7, and they were still getting radio plays, but none of them were reforming and people wanted to know what they were doing now. Enter the big reunion. To explain again what this is, it's a reunion show of six bands from yesteryear who would reform for a reality show that ended with a one-off performance at the Hammersmith Apollo. Odium. We've referenced it before in the Five and Damage episodes. Uh, they loved it. Uh, Blue actually brought in later in the series, and the other bands were a bit resentful of that, I think, because they had already reformed, whereas the yeah, other bands there was were a lot of, together. There a lot of chatter about how the fact they hadn't really split up at any yeah. point. Um, So they loved doing the show and seeing all the struggles that the other bands had, they realised how special their bond was. They were originally, all the bands in the Brigley reunion were originally only supposed to perform a one-off concert um, on the 26th of February 2013, but the entire show sold out in under five minutes, shortly after the premiere of the first episode. So it was confirmed that following high ticket demands and the popularity of the TV show, a full 12 day UK tour would be taking place in May 2013. They finally released the now unblocked album Roulette in April 2013, but felt the moment had passed with all the shit that had happened and there was so much negative energy around the album. 
they'd got to work with Wayne Hector on a song called Risk It All and Red One, who was Lady Gaga's producer. And they worked also on... worked with New Kids on the Block. Ah, Red well, one. three of the tracks on their album were produced by Red One. Wayne Hector. That uh, name's come take up. Take that. Hasn't I'm it? sure he's worked with Take yeah, That. I think, yeah, I think it was Take That. In 2013, they performed 176 shows all over the world. They didn't care. I know. They were like, we're back. We're fucking back. They didn't care what the gigs were. They just wanted to do a great job of all of them. Uh, They also had another brush with death en (laughs) en route from Beijing to Mongolia for a gig filling in for the Backstreet Boys. The Backstreet Boys turned down a lot of stuff, don't they? Isn't that how NSYNC got big? Yeah. They'd been very iffy about getting onto the tiny old plane in the first place, realising that health and safety wasn't really a thing in Asia and ended up flying into a lightning storm. They said it was worth it. The gig was incredible and 25,000 fans turned up and screamed louder than they'd ever heard in the UK. Is it one of those situations, though, where we're having survived a close death experience literally anything afterwards just feels amazing and euphoric yeah, just to like, be like there'd be like five people there slow hand clapping and then be like, like, it was the most yeah. amazing gig ever <laughs> yeah. um on the 16th of may that year they released without you as a second single from the album but only in germany switzerland and austria on the 16th of May 2013, the band released Without You as the second single from the album in Germany, Switzerland and Austria. Break My Heart was released as the third single from the album on the 29th of June. Lee decided in January 2014 to do Celebrity Big Brother to make a bit of money. Manager Paul and the rest of the boys reminded him how hard it was to be watched constantly other people weren't equipped to deal with him the way the band was and that he should die all <laughs> day. What, what a nice way of putting the you're really fucking hard to handle man and uh, they also suggested he should dial down like the girl flirting stuff and he was like yeah 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 i got this he thought it was a good way to show another side of himself Uh, He was at this point also in denial about how much he was drinking, which was about a bottle of whiskey a day. And he was only a year out of his breakup with Sammy, his last girlfriend and the mother of his child. After the bankruptcy, he was sleeping in Duncan's attic in Ealing. So it felt like a good time for him to make some bank. He said that although he passed the Celebrity Big Brother psychological testing, he didn't think he was mentally prepared to go and live in a claustrophobic environment with 11 strangers and cameras in their faces with situations orchestrated to deliberately wind them up. Lee very quickly got involved in a love triangle orchestrated by the producers, he claims, and was flirting with both girls and going back and forth between them. Which who are they? There was Casey Batchelor. And who was like a, a lads mag girl, glamour model, and Jasmine, someone who was an American, who I kind of feel like was the same thing in the US. Okay. Um, so he was flirting with both girls, going back and forth between them, had no idea how many people were watching the show, and he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. The tabloids, had, which goes to show a lot about the way men treat women. Yeah. Um, the tabloids had a field day and women from Lee's past sold kiss and tells to the papers. More women. Meanwhile, Lee and Ollie Locke developed a lovely friendship. And um, Ollie was at the time going through um, coming out. He was 
wasn't sure if he was gay, bisexual, etc. Um, and Lee handled Ollie's issues surrounding his sexuality really kindly and even said he dabbled a bit himself with a bit of same sex activity, which actually just got overshadowed by the love triangle stuff. Lee got booed on his eviction. He still didn't know what he'd done wrong. <laughs> the manager, Paul, brought in all the news cuttings the following day. He got loads of abuse on social media and death threats again, along with Paps camped outside his house. And he started drinking again. So Jasmine, who was one of the triangle, and he went to Thailand on holiday together and they had a huge row and she fucked off back to America. Lee went back to the UK and the tabloids were still going for him. He was told not to do any interviews to try and explain his side of the story. He did no, celebrity he interview. <laughs> no, he did celebrity juice six weeks after leaving CBB and found he was getting dirty looks from the other panelists. He would read the abuse on Twitter and sometimes respond angrily. He was pulled over driving home one night and got arrested for drink driving. Lee said he was being bullied by the papers, by the people on the street and by other celebrities. He was facing a prison sentence for the drink driving. The other three went on the offensive and did interviews talking about what a great guy Lee was. I think this is where the article I referenced earlier from Simon talking about Lee came from. And he turned and they all turned up to his court case. He was fined and released and he went off to rehab. He says that he thinks rehab saved his life at that point. Simon had a hard start to 2014. His drinking was still out of control and he'd had a blackout in a hotel in Kazakhstan after a gig, taking his shirt off and tried to fight everyone and then tried to jump out of a window on the 10th floor. The windows were locked shut, fortunately. When he got back to the UK, he reflected on what had happened and said he felt really frightened by the whole episode. He had a call from Lee who asked him how he was doing and to stay strong, that better things were coming. Not long after that, Simon got offered Strictly Come, Come Dancing. It brought him everything his body and mind needed. He danced with Christina Rianoff and he was great. He ended up crying on live TV when he was in the bottom two and that was when he decided to go public with his depression. Simon and Christina made it to the final, losing out to Pasha, Kovalev and Caroline Flack. In November 2014, Blue announced they'd signed a two-album record deal with Sony Music, starting with their fifth album, Colours, released on the 9th of March 2015. They then embarked on a 16-day tour around the UK during March and April. The album underperformed, selling only 4,000 copies in its first week of release, which resulted in the band being dropped by the label. In January 2015, Blue starred in their own TV programme on ITV2 called Blue Go Mad in Ibiza, which followed the band as they ran their own bar out in Ibiza. Little did they know that they were being pranked. Everybody involved in the bar, excluding Blue themselves, were actors who purposely made things as awkward as possible. I didn't dive too deep into this. I just couldn't bear it. I can't bear stuff like that. It makes me cringe too much. Um, on May the 9th, 2015, Blue performed at VE Day 70, a party to remember in Horse Guards Parade, London, dressed as World War II RAF officers. Wow. Now I would watch that. <laughs> um, as they were preparing for their 2015 tour, Lee lost his voice. Alcohol and speaking too much, they thought. He couldn't sing at all. Doctors said there was a cyst on his vocal cords. It was larger than normal and he needed steroids for three to four months. And he blew up 
And of course, everyone who met him said, oh, you're fat. And like he said, it was unbelievable how people treated him. The steroids didn't work and he needed surgery. So he had the op, the cyst was removed and it was analysed and he was told it was precancerous. This I found really interesting because in May 2015, I was involved in booking the entertainment for Mark Wright and Michelle Keegan's wedding, which we signed an NDA for. And I definitely shouldn't be saying on here, but fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we'd heard that Blue was supposed to be performing and that they'd pulled out at the last minute. And I mean, the last minute. And I remember thinking that was well tight, but I suppose this makes sense looking back if Lee had suddenly lost his voice. So... June 2016, Simon did Celebrity MasterChef and was eliminated in the second heat. And in August 2016, Duncan joined the cast of Hollyoaks playing the character of Ryan Knight, who murdered his wife and uncle. And he stayed in the show until he was killed off in May 2018. Uh, He fell into a river during a fight and was left to drown. I think I remember seeing that maybe on Gogglebox or something. Pretty good staying power for Hollyoaks who kill roughly three people a week oh really like it's not a, a long-term career unless you're uh, Nick Pickard who's been in it for 25 years <laughs> yeah is he still in it yeah unless you're him it's not yeah. a long-term career move because they just there's so many deaths for a tiny village that only yeah. has a hundred residents it's like mm. everyone dies I think they've had two maybe three serial killers wow Anyway, yeah, sorry. That, Again, that is a lot. very geographically narrow. Okay. Well, we're staying geographically narrow because um, in February 2017, it was confirmed that Lee had landed a role in the BBC soap opera EastEnders. What, what? He, he was cast as lovable barman Woody Woodward initially, <laughs> <laughs> initially for a short stint between April and May, but it was later announced that Woody would be promoted to a regular role and that Lee had signed a one-year contract with the show. He received the 2017 Inside Soap Award nomination for Best Newcomer. Lee later told The Mirror that the EastEnders bosses wouldn't give him a firm answer on what would happen with his character after his contract came up for renewal. And he had signed on for Panto and Wimbledon that year playing Aladdin and then had a contract he couldn't break. In true Lee Ryan from Blue Style, he was quoted as saying, I was told that if I went ahead with the Panto, they'd cut Woody's major storyline which is exactly what they did. That was a real shame. I was meant to marry Whitney, but they downgraded my story. I'm grateful for what EastEnders did for my career, but you're very much at their beck and call. But you can't keep a good man down though, or a bad one, he says. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There were rumours in 2017 also that Blue had started recording their next album. However, the project was postponed when Sony didn't renew the contract. In October that year, Simon released his solo album, Smile. Lee took part in the 2018 BBC series Strictly Come Dancing. He was partnered with professional dancer Nadia Bichkova and was the second contestant to be eliminated. He went on to tour the UK the following year, performing in music and dance show Rip It Up the 70s alongside S Club 7's Rachel Stevens, Pussycat Dolls' Melody Thornton and Strictly Champ Lewis Smith. I believe the original Rip It Up lineup featured boy banders um, Aston Murray Gold and Harry Judd. Yes, I was about to say, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was a boy band. We've mentioned it before. Yeah. Yeah, extravaganza. In 2019, Lee starred in Celebs Go Dating on E4, which (laughs) was... 
absolutely wonderful. If anyone's never watched this show, and I hadn't before, I strongly encourage you to do so because, my God, it's funny. Narrated by comedian Rob Beckett, he's what makes it. Yeah. And I would say to watch this series in particular because it's brilliant. It is brilliant. Um, Lee also released his first single in 2019 after nine years, which was a song called Ghost. Duncan spent 2019 touring the UK with the Rocky Horror Show, where he played Frankenfurter and got incredible reviews by all accounts. In July 2019, he publicly released pictures of him with his current boyfriend, Rodrigo, adding that he is proud to be gay. And on the 12th of September 2019, the highlight of Duncan's life when he found himself on a train and changing trains at Wimbledon Station with a certain co-host <laughs> of a certain podcast about boy bands. <laughs> In October 2019, he featured in two episodes of First Dates Hotel in which he had his first public date while openly gay with 38-year-old Portuguese native Jao. Also in 2019, Blue performed in TV adverts for Ideal Boilers after revealing they were having financial difficulties and problems getting a new label or releasing a new album. Anthony Lee and Duncan all did Panto in 2019, which feels like a recurring theme every year for those three. They absolutely love it. Oh, no, they don't. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yes, they do. (laughs) Which brings us to 2020. Anthony and Simon did Celebrity Coach Trip, which aired early this year. Uh, Lee released two solo singles, Mockingbirds and Suede. Not swayed like leather, but swayed like swaying swayed. Um, in August 2020, Blue featured in the Innocent Drinks ads for their new Blue Drinks. Also in August 2020, Lee was banned from driving for six months after again. he was again, but this time he was caught speeding twice in three months. Simon is still releasing solo music and is pretty active on Instagram. If you want to check him out, he's at Simon Web One. Anthony is also relatively active on Instagram at Anthony Costa. He seems to have a really stable family life with his wife and two kids. Um, my path crossed with his actually when he ventured into the world of booking entertainment for corporate events a few years back. But going back to look at the website now, I can't see he's still on there. So perhaps he parted ways with them. I don't know. Uh, Duncan's another Insta user. He's at Mr. Duncan James. According to that, he featured on Jane and Friends last night on Channel 5 with Gareth Gates. Oh, what's Jane and Friends? Uh, Jane McDonald. Oh, okay. Must be like a I mean, woman. The pictures he's got a mic, him and Gareth Gates have got microphones. So I don't know if they went on and sang, but we'll have a look on 5OD or whatever it's called. Okay, do that. Um, so yeah, so the band basically they say they've never fallen out. They're all conflict averse, which was partly to blame for the cracks that formed the first time around, which McFly also cite as a reason for their own split. It's interesting that I've I think. Um Blue but again, describe- it's a nice it's another nice story like the McFly one in that they've always remained quite solid. Yes. Like they may have drifted apart, but yes. they've always remained in touch and support yes. each other and drifted eventually drifted back together. There, yeah, there's never been any fallings out or anything yeah. like that. Um Blue described themselves by saying there's no alpha in the group. If someone has an issue, we've we're all ready to back down. We have so much love and respect for one another. Oh. And that is the story of blue from blue from blue (laughs) (laughs) okay well i need to go away and point 
um so let's do that and we will reconvene shortly when yes. i'll do the rundown of the boy band chart super Okay, so have they knocked McFly off the top of the chart? I, I think you... Well, let's see, shall we? It's <laughs> only one way to find out. That's with the top... Uh, 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 60... Uh, no, 58 rundown? Oh, my, I can't even see. 68. you want to go from 68 down? Mm, okay, all right. I mean, this episode, <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> this episode isn't long enough, clearly. <laughs> I'll do the top 20. Okay. I, I'm saddened to say that Big Fun have been knocked out of the top 20 this week. Oh. It's a disappointment. Have, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll do you a deal. Yeah. Let's take damage out. <laughs> we'll put Big Fun back in. <laughs> we give Big Fun all of Damage's points. I mean, yeah. wasn't, wasn't there a chemsex scandal with Big Fun? I don't know that we can allocate them <laughs> someone else's points because they're not completely free of... Of, I want to use the word damage. <laughs> scandal. <laughs> scandal. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. Okay. Okay. So here's the I'm with the boy band ultimate boy band list top twenty. At As num- at December 2020. At number twenty we have Union J. At number nineteen is LFO. Eighteen is EYC. Seventeen. Uh. <laughs> sounded like you were burping. You want to do that again? I opened my mouth to say it and nothing came. <laughs> This is the, Jimmy Savile never had this trouble doing his top 20 rundown. <laughs> Are you ready? Because your moment's coming. At number 18 is EYC. Yeah. Number 17 is BB Mac. 16 is World Apart. At number 15 is Nathan Moore, Boy Band Whore, and Brother Beyond. Uh, at number 13 is Human Nature. Number 12, Curiosity Killed the Cat. And at number 11, Another Level. So into our top 10. At number 10 is PJ and Duncan. Aka. At number 9 is Crisscross. Cross. Maybe you want to jump. jump. At number 8 is Bros. I just oh, want yeah. to say I've just watched Luke Goss's new film called The Loss Adjuster. Everyone How should go it? out and buy it. It was, it's not a Notting Hill christmas movie it's not up there but it was it was good fun oh my god i so thought you were gonna go it was fucking dreadful uh at number seven is five and at number six is the jonas brothers so we're into the top five where do you think they're gonna come five have you looked no i was kind of like i hope she doesn't look and ruin it no i didn't Um, okay at number five is Busted. Oh, at number four is Hanson. Uh, at number three, this week's boy band of the week, Blue. At wow. number two, the Bay City Rollers, and still a top of the chart for 2020 is our favourite boy band, our favourite co-boy band, our co-favourite <laughs> boy band. Uh, it's McFly. Wow, that's uh, that's really impressive. I think I, the top two are going to take some knocking off yeah but we've got some biggies still to come and there's i mean there's still a hell of a gap between number between blue and the bay city rollers but i knew they'd do pretty well when you were going through their chart history kind of like the succession of number ones and like Mm. top tens they had i was kind of like oh they're really racking up the points as we go along here yeah yeah 
I mean, I think we this is kind of like a separated into two things now. It's like who is going to get the number three slot because those top two are not going anywhere for some time. Yeah. And if something massive like comes along and knocks off McFly down to two or the base city rollers down to three, then that's that's um, like yeah. incredible. That's we're talking probably wham the Beatles. <laughs> I'm trying to think of who else might take that mic. Mike, the kids in Street. But you, when you look at McFly, like just their their level of output mm. points wise, and don't forget McFly points also haven't been adjusted for their most recent stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they've still, and there's a, a hell of a gap between McFly and the Bay City Rollers. Mm. And there's a big, big chunk there. So, okay. yeah, it's interesting. I think McFly yeah, will probably be at the top of the charts at the end of 2021. Should we, <laughs> should we both make it that far? Uh, do you mean, should we both actually put out a few more episodes <laughs> in 2021? <laughs> we'll see. It's getting there. Life's getting yeah. slightly more back to normal, isn't it? It is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, just I, th- I think I said all the way through where I pulled all the information from, but I got a lot of it from their autobiography, All Rise, The Blue Story. So, um, yeah, thank you to Blue for not only writing <laughs> the book, but for reading the audio version. Not only was... ghost writing the book. <laughs> yeah, well, for... <laughs> they, I mean, I, I, the ghost writer is the person who does write it, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For having a book written yeah. on your behalf. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Good episode. It was really good fun. We should do this more often. Do you reckon? Yeah. Maybe, maybe we should start a podcast. Oh my God. Every cunt in the world has started a podcast during <laughs> lockdown. And I say that because I saw on Twitter yesterday someone that I used to fuck who uh, has started a podcast. Can I just and I please like, say, oh. can we... It's Christmas. Can we bleep the cunt and the fuck because <laughs> everyone's kids are going to be home from school because of and your, <laughs> your, your very religious ears are offended by no, I just Christmas think... cunting and fucking <laughs> I just think more children are going to be home and parents aren't going to expect us to be quite that level of... okay I'll tell you what I'll do when I do the edit I'll go watch out in the final segment because there's some very blue language oh <laughs> I see what you did there <laughs> okay that's it we're at the end thank you once again for joining us for the i'm with the boy band podcast we where we are week by week uh (laughs) charting the ultimate boy band um Um, but remember it's not the boy band that falls at the top of our chart that's the ultimate boy band it's the one that was there for you when you needed the most and got you from there to here boy band you later Oh, do you know what? Something else I'm going to add in at the end, which we haven't okay. done in ages, is um, um, our theme tune is Dance With You by Fire and Lights from the Songs About a Girl trilogy by Chris Russell. Visit songsaboutagirl.com. We also didn't do our social media bit, but that's fine. Everyone, everyone <laughs> knows where to find us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop recording now. 